Hello everyone, welcome to the New Humanist Podcast. I'm Damien and this is episode 44, the second of part 7. The topic for today is the problem with Sam Harris. Alright, so Sam Harris, who it has to be said has become one of the more outspoken critics not only of religion, specifically Christianity, but of one could identify as conservatism or anything that's associated with tradition or with the right, politically speaking, okay? And this is a sort of a broader issue I have with Sam Harris and frankly with all of the new atheists, which is their political underpinning. The fact that these people, every single one of them, I would say, come from a certain end of the political spectrum and hence espouse a certain worldview, a certain way of looking at the world, is a cause for concern. So for the listener, just to preface this at the very beginning, what follows now is sort of an analysis of the person's views of religion, yes, but also their political disposition, okay, because that part clearly, it seems to me, is integral to their critique, their overarching view of what religion is, in this case, that religion being Christianity. All right, so Sam Harris. I've already mentioned this in the previous time I tackled some of the views of this particular person, is that my knowledge of Sam Harris, my familiarity with his works, stems from my knowledge of Christopher Hitchens, right? He was sort of the introduction, actually goes back to Richard Dawkins, but the new atheist as a movement, okay, sort of stems from Hitchens and Harris, then of course sort of circles back to Dawkins, who I knew earlier on in terms of his book, but knew little of him as a person. Now, when it comes to Sam Harris, the main reference point, of course, is his critic of religion, okay, starting with his very popular books, some of which I have read, The End of Faith, uh, and the other one, of course, being A Letter to a Christian Nation. In fact, for the second book, leave that point aside, but anyway, the End of Faith and A Letter to a Christian Nation are books which I've read, both of them. I used to listen to his podcast a bit, which is the Waking Up podcast, I think, for some time, but I haven't really kept up with it over the years, and with very good reason, if I may say so, especially the last uh, four or five years. But, uh, you know, he's been, say, a voice of reason, so to speak, or at least he's tried to be one, on the intellectual left. And, of course, he himself identifies with the left, so I guess there's nothing wrong in saying it. And, of course, speaking of humanism as a movement, whether it's in the United Kingdom or the U.S., so I would say anywhere in the world, he's still fundamentally a left-of-center movement when it comes to the political alignments of the people who identify as humanists, which really functionally corresponds to atheism. People who are atheistic sort of cloak themselves in the veneer of a humanist. And that is, of course, understandable, because atheism is not very popular. And to call yourself a humanist, that is to say someone who believes in something, right, as opposed to merely rejecting something else, in this case the existence of God, makes much more sense, especially in one could say more religious societies like in the U.S., where, you know, the country still is sort of Christian uh, for the most part, even though that sensibility is also in rapid decline. But when it comes to the question about humanism, in this case, the problem with atheism, particularly its intellectual basis, the problem I have with people like Sam Harris, okay, is their very selective approach towards criticizing Christianity. Now, we got to think about this very clearly, folks. I mean, it's very easy, right, for critics of religion, okay, to sort of look back at their culture and the world around them and say, oh, look, this is how society is, and this is how society should be, or this is how society ought to be. And there's this tendency to view society, especially in the West, as sort of a a product of European enlightenment, right, of its ability to remove itself from its dark history of religion and backwardness and metaphysical limitations. The point here is that the view that society is better off without religion, okay, follows a certain historical precedent and how it evolves through time. Much of it stems back to the French Revolution, particularly the the radical Robespierre kind of variant, which I will not get into here, and the radical anti-religious 
firmly anti-spiritual, one could even say, character of the French Revolution, right? And that essentially is one of the more dominant forces that has guided secularism over the years. And of course, there are many other points of origin, going back all the way back to Erasmus and so on. Even in many ways, paradoxically, even Christianity has been a force for humanism. People don't realize it's actually the Protestant Reformation in Germany, but it was one of the key drivers of the rise of a humanistic spirit, right? That is to say, the problem with the institutional religion was a main cause of concern, whereas the break with the Catholic Church and the establishment of a, a Protestant, or more decentralized, more culturally localized churches, right, or bastion of belief, in this case, over later become the German state, that itself facilitated a spirit of inquiry, a spirit of independence, and also, critically, the translation of the Bible into the lay language that was German made it more accessible, so God became more accessible. God's spirit manifesting itself through the people became more personalized, localized, individualized, and that itself gave rise to a kind of humanism in a spiritual sense. And that is something I will get into much later on, but the point I'm getting at here, listener, is that the idea of humanism okay, has its own rich history, and it need not be tethered to a purely atheistic role, or more pertinently, a view which seeks to create a more anti-theistic, or create a world that is devoid of religion and God. In fact, now speaking of Sam Harris, a lot of the problems I have with him in many ways are mirrored by, who's this guy? Jordan Peterson, right? He's all over the place now. On YouTube, and of course, the listeners I'm sure might be aware of him. He has sort of been sort of a, a counterforce to the atheistic one, and he himself trying to provide a certain, let's say, a counter-narrative, if one could say. Whilst I'm not, honestly, I'm not a fan of Jordan Peterson. I've not really read much of his works. I've not read any of his works, as a matter. I've not read his book. I've seen some of his speeches, but that's a topic for another time. We'll get into that in, in all due time. But the point here is, Sam Harris and a whole lot of them, right? Dawkins and the other atheists, which I will mention later on, they all fall into this category where they think society is better off without religion, without God. And the sum of people become more rational and sensible and more critically, more humane once they disassociate themselves from a religious heritage, from a Christian heritage, critically. Because I cannot speak for other religions. I don't know how things work out in, in Judaism and Islam, although Judaism is fundamentally Western, so it's more of a sub-belief right, in the Western culture. That, that's a topic for another time because fundamentally it's the word Judeo-Christian, although I'm not much of a fan of it, but you know, we can use that. It's workable. Right. The Western world is Christian fundamentally, right? And that cannot be messed with. And the idea emanating from the secular side, in this case represented by the views of people like Sam Harris, is that we can sort of tear away it. You need to break it down and sort of establish or help establish a more secular, ultimately atheistic worldview, which in itself has, critically, utopian pretensions. Now, this is not something that's engaged, but if you look at the broader narratives on globalism, on, on the need for global governance, the rules-based order, a lot of the rhetoric coming from people on the left, and again, I'll get into this later, probably in a future part, which is a group of six episodes. But here, okay, in this particular episode, right, the problem with Sam Harris, okay, what is the problem? What is it that I find really problematic about him? Well, a couple of things. First off, I've already started this point, is that Sam Harris is on the left, okay? And I have to say, people on the left, these days, have a lot to answer for, it seems, okay? Certainly in the West, particularly when it comes to issues like identity politics, when it comes to issues like violence, okay? When it comes to issues like, just take the debates on race, right? And gender, okay? And, and even gender orientation, okay? There's a lot of, how can I say, irrationality on the left. And people like Sam Harris, it seems to me, right, are not really engaging these things or not engaging them as critically as they ought to. That is to say, their main concern still, it seems to me, is with the right, is with the Christian, those who value tradition, those who value heritage. Now, this is a bit tricky because in America, it probably is more pertinent than in Europe. Because in Europe, the Christian right, so to speak, is not existent as far as I can see. Maybe in countries like Poland, I don't know, maybe in England to some extent, because the conservatives there, 
But really, practically speaking, there is no religious right in the Western world, with the exception of the United States. America is kind of the only exception, but even that is also weakening. But so the point here is that when it comes to people like Sam Harris, their critique of religion or the West, right, or of Western culture, is really about chipping away at what is left of American Christianity. Although America is still a Christian country, what is left of its Christian heritage, according to these people, according to people like Sam Harris and Dawkins and the whole lot of them, is the need to get rid of it, to remove it, okay, and to make it a bit more like Europe. Although, when it comes to Europe, now this is interesting, so I'll get into this probably later, Europe is now undergoing its own process of change, okay, even though Europe is secular, there are other forces afoot, and we don't know what will happen or where they would lead, okay, and that is a topic for another time. The idea is that Europe is somehow sorted out, that Europe is a pristine, you know, paradise-like place because of its secular character, that narrative does not hold up. Sure, Europe is secular, Europe is predominantly atheistic, Europe is in a way, moved on from its Christian heritage, but there are other forces at work, and that is something for us to consider at a later time. When I speak of Sam Harris, my problem is with him in relation to the United States, because his main critique of America is its right, the political right, which is Christian, which is the evangelicals, and of course, critically, in recent times, the relationship with the phenomenon of Donald Trump. And this is something I will get into later on in this episode. So, when it comes to Sam Harris, okay, what is my problem? The two main points, which I think I can sort of dig into today, would be, one, Sam Harris's critique of religion, i.e. God, is very simplistic. Point number two, Sam Harris and the Trump derangement syndrome. Okay, so the first one, Sam Harris in relation to God. So what I've just given you, listener, before I mention the two points, just to sort of lay the groundwork, so to speak, right? which is quite simplistic, but it sort of lets you know what's happening. In the United States, for example, there are many forces at work that are let's say, causing instability. The destabilizing forces of the United States are many-fold. It's coming on the left and the right. But, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, listener, but the destabilization of American culture, fundamentally, it seems to me, is coming primarily from the left. I don't see many, you know, of course, with, in all fairness, there are supremacist movements and, what do you call them, really, neo-Nazis or KKK, whatever the people, right, on the right as well, let's be real. But, when it comes to social movements, which are more active, which are more confrontational, which are more aggressive, they seem to be predominant on the left. I could be wrong, but that's my impression, okay? So it's very difficult, I guess, as a person who thinks rationally or wants to think rationally to somehow say, oh, the left is fine, and we need to focus all of our attention on the right politically, right? And look at the issues with what's going wrong with the United States on the right. Then, of course, this is a broader issue, which I, I don't want to get into here, but I mean, just use one example. In the U.S., most of the crimes, right, most of the violence and so on are taking place in, not in Republican states, this is the sort of a trick people miss, but in, in Democrat-administered principalities or Democrat-administered localities, you know, right, in, or Democrat-controlled mayoralities, right? In other words, cities and inner cities, townships, I don't know what the technical terms are, but it's in cities and local governments which are run by Democrats, these areas, right, for example, Baltimore, Atlanta, Georgia, right, New York City, okay, Sacramento. I mean, these major areas, right? Detroit, of course, in Michigan. So, I mean, these areas are basically hotbits for crime and violence and instability, and they seem to be governed by you know, left-wing political groups. Now, and see, listener, what I'm getting at here, right? Even before I get to the religious subject, I'm already talking about the politics, right? I'm already talking about the left versus right. I'm already getting hung up or distracted, okay? That's the key word here, by the politics of this debate. And that is what has become this issue, right? It is no longer about what people have to say on the topic of God, but it's about the politics that underlies it. Now, I've already made it clear to the listener from the very start that I'm more on the right in the spectrum when it comes to these issues. Not that I'm right-wing, but it seems to me there's more rationality, or there's more potential for rationality on the right. 
believe it or not. Now, this is important, listener, because the new humanist, as I said from the very beginning, is someone who values the transcendental, someone who values the Christian heritage, the Christian faith to affirm these things. There's no reason for us to simply dispose of them all in the name of progress, all in the name of modernity or whatever the new term is, right, for progress, okay? And a lot of the forces which seems to cause, that seem to contribute to instability in the West, it seems to me emanate from a weakening of these foundations. We look at social policy later. I think I've already spoken enough of the politics. Let's keep this critique the level of criticizing Sam Harris's views. The point I'm getting at, listeners, is that Sam Harris is a representative of the left. He does not represent the right. His humanism, or whatever that he may affirm when it comes to the question about human well-being, which I think he does, because after all, as I mentioned before, especially in the last step or so, everything that we do corresponds to a humanistic question. It is about human well-being in the here and now. There is no disputing. There is no touching it. That is the sacred principle. If that is the case, how do we approach it? And for what basis do we approach it? And Sam Harris, it seems to me, though it's pretty clear, it's pretty clear from the very beginning, is someone who does not value the transcendental, someone who does not value the religion, someone who does not value the history of Western culture in terms of its heritage that is built on Christianity. That is a problem. Now, when it comes to Sam Harris, critically, the main criticism, of course, is point number one, which is that they are shallow and, frankly, in many respects, quite, if I may say so, simplistic. Now, this is not to say that they are superficial, okay? They seem to be going after the low-hanging fruit. In other words, they seem to be sort of replaying the age-old critique of Christianity. There's nothing new. There's nothing sophisticated, dare I say. Which is not to say that his criticisms are, are lacking in substance. His criticisms are powerful. They're pertinent. They're effective. But they need a greater degree of substance. They need a degree of sophistication. And here I will point to one example, which I, I would encourage the listener to do, is to go on YouTube and to go YouTube Sam Harris God, okay, or Sam Harris Religion, okay, and you get a video of him, right, which is basically 11... 11 plus minutes, basically, right? And it's him debating William Lane Craig, prominent Christian apologist from the United States. He's defending Christianity against all these people. And this debate between Sam Harris and William Lane Craig, okay, it's like, no, probably over a couple of hours, I think. I remember watching this a few years back, somewhere in, I don't know, 2015 or 2016. It was a good debate, but this particular excerpt, it's taken from that video in which Sam Harris is attacking William Lane Craig, but he's attacking God, he's attacking religion is attacking the basis of faith. And it's a very solid critique, in fact, and it's a powerful one, especially if you're a believer. But the problem with critique, okay, and I'll assume the listener has watched the video, is that he attacks religion or Christianity in a very, how can I say, predictable way. So let me just break this down for you. This, for me, it sort of exemplifies the problem we have with the so-called critique of religion, right? It's very shallow, despite, and this is critical, it's shallow despite its apparent sophistication. For example, in the video, Sam Harris addresses the question about so many people dying every day, so many innocent children, okay, who are, you know, just life is being lost. Callous loss of life every day is a tragedy, right? No one can dispute that. And Harris, in a very, I think, an effective way, he's good at articulating these things, he's good with words. He basically puts that on God. God who loves us, God who cares for us, God who is good to us, etc. The basic Christian terms or Christian expressions that are associated with God. And I think Sam Harris just turns them on their head and basically says, look, if this God that you say who is good, and this, he's basically responding to William Lane Craig, who loves us, who cares for us, who's good to us, etc., etc., if that is the case, why are these things happening? Why are so many people dying? Why are so many innocent children dying? And more critically, and he takes the point even further, he assumes that a lot of these people are faithful, a lot of the people who are involved are persons of faith. Okay, why is it happening to them? Very powerful, right? And really, if you think about it from a Christian perspective, and I can identify with this, because as I mentioned before, 
I am very much sympathetic to the Christian worldview, right? I don't deny it. I mean, I do value Europe's, especially Europe and I guess to a great extent America's Christian heritage, and I don't think it should be weakened, it should be strengthened. Paradoxically, right? That's the trajectory of the new humanist, but in a different light, and that's something we'll get into later. But in context of this, right, the question about suffering, the question about the loss of life, the question about innocence, why do children, why does it have to happen to them? What about all the prayers? What about all the things that we want for life? All the things that we ask from God and look at what's happening. This is an age-old question. This is the question. Okay, it is the fundamental question, right? In other words, this is what drives the religious question. Okay, why is there suffering? How can there be evil in a good world? How can there be God or how can there be good in a world that is so evil? How can there be God who is almighty in a world that is full of suffering? How can, how can these things happen? We know this. How do we grapple with this? The fact is, it's not easy. It is not easy. And that's what Samaritan does. He engages what is the, sort of the kernel of the religious critique. Okay, and this is not a new critique, by the way, listener. What Samaritan is putting forward is not a sophisticated critique of religion. It's not a sophisticated critique of God. We heard this a million times before. And frankly, as a Christian, if you are a Christian or if you're a person of faith, you would have to grapple with this every day. That is life. In fact, an argument can be made. This is something I'll reserve for a later time. These questions become more pertinent from a religious perspective. Okay? It's easier in many ways to deal with these kinds of questions as an atheist rather than as a theist. In other words, it's kind of easy to say, you know what? Life is messy. Life is violent. Life is... It's as Darwin described it, right? It's like a survivalist reality, right? Only the fittest survive and... I mean, we can go down that trajectory, and in a way, it sort of facilitates an atheistic worldview. Okay. So paradoxically, right, to embrace atheism in this context is easy, it's natural, it seems almost logical, right? Contrary to that view, to adopt a theistic view, to believe in God, to believe in the tr transcendental goodness, to believe in God's plan for humanity, which is to lift us up, that is much harder. It requires much greater work. So that is sort of a critique of mine to this question about God and suffering, right? It's easy to go down that route and then to embrace atheism. That seems like a logical endpoint, whereas it's harder to fight against it, to, to stand from and say, no, you know, I'm going to believe in spite of it, okay? That's something for a listener to consider, but that's for a later time. My point, listener, is that if you listen to that video, Samaritan really you know, hammers down this argument. So what kind of God are we talking about? Who is this God? What, what, is he, what is he doing? And that's a very, very powerful argument. Truly, I don't have an answer to that, okay? I don't think anyone does, really. We can try to answer, and that is the key question. As a person of faith, our journey, our life in pursuit of the transcendent is a way to answer this question. If anyone had the answer to that question, you know, they'd be, you know, the smartest person in the world, probably, I don't know. Uh, but that is a challenge which the atheist, paradoxically, think about it, right, rejects. He doesn't want, he just say, you know what, there is no God, there is no greater goodness, there is no higher power, hence I reject it. That is not intellectual sophistication, not for me. So that is a point of criticism. The next one, of course, is the heaven and hell argument. And this is, of course, we heard this a million, I won't say a million times, but we heard it a lot of times. What is the purpose of heaven and hell? How do we justify it? How do we come to terms with it? And again, not really watched the whole video recently. I did watch it earlier on. And I think William Lane Craig's main argument is the need for God to justify morality, right? That is to say, we need God to be good, particularly as an enforcing authority. So if you take God out of the equation, the disposition to do evil is greater or more stronger, right? belief in God or the affirmation of a transcendental power who's watching over us impels us. It acts as a compelling force to stopping us from doing evil, right? That is something for us to consider. I think when you take that away, the propensity to do evil, the willingness to commit sin, to commit crimes okay, against life is much greater. And I think that's where God becomes important. Of course, it's a different question. But when it comes to this particular question about heaven and hell, Samaris is right. It's very difficult to sustain this view. My argument is this. 
we don't really know what heaven and hell is or are, right? It's very difficult to answer these questions. In fact, we haven't really formulated a serious or a comprehensive theology of heaven and hell. That's my take on this, right? My knowledge of these subject areas is that they're very much a work in progress. We don't really know, okay? Much of our knowledge of heaven and hell is really scriptural. It's referential. The Bible says X, Y, Z about heaven and hell, and then we believe it, right? You know, St. Paul will say, you know, people who are drunks and, you know, fornicators and, you know, adulterers are going to hell. Hence, they're going to hell. Whereas everyone else who are good and moral are going to heaven. That is very simplistic, right? The other hand, Jesus Christ himself says, those who believe in me and follow me are saved. I'm paraphrasing, listener, but, you know, the question is, what happens to those people who don't believe? And this is something, of course, I've spoken of before, but there's more to it than that. Point is, more work needs to be done. It's not, it's not right to just dismiss them, say, oh, well, some religious guy, some guy in the West who's a bigot and a criminal, but then he converts to Christianity on his deathbed and he's going to heaven. Everyone else, you know, people in other countries who are not Christian, right? I've known quite a few of them, by the way, good people, and then they don't believe in Jesus Christ. They don't accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and then they're going to hell as a result. It's kind of ludicrous, really, and I think this point is well made. Now, the point is this. When it comes to the question about God, when it comes to the question about life, when it comes to the question about redemption, okay? These are much deeper realities, and we need to work them out over time. And that requires a deep study of theology, of history, of society. It's an evolving enterprise, and we need to work them out. This is a work in progress, listener, right? We don't have the answer to this question. We don't have the answer to the question of evil. We don't know what heaven is. We don't know what hell is, right? We have an idea, but let me just point to one particular example. In that particular speech, type in Sam Harris, God, or religion, and you'll get the video him responding to William Lane Craig. He says there's no evidence for heaven or hell. Now, that is not entirely true, in the sense that if heaven and hell, right, corresponds to parallel worlds or parallel universes, these views can be sustained within the physics, right? Quantum physics, I think, does open the door to parallel universes, right? In fact, certain kinds of theories of, of our cosmos do pave the way, do facilitate other dimensions. For example, brand cosmology or brain, I think that's the right word, within the framework of M-theory, right? Which I think is propounded by uh, Stephen Hawking himself. There is some ground for these things, and this is something I'll get into later on in a future episode as we discuss the realities of heaven and hell. And believe me, they are coming. The discussion on heaven and hell and how it corresponds to Christian theology, to Christian metaphysics, and how it corresponds to advances in modern science. These things I will engage in a future time. But the point is the idea that there is no evidence for heaven or hell is too simplistic. There may not be evidence for a biblical conception of heaven and hell. That is in a world where there is fire and people, people you know, floating on clouds and whatever. Maybe not that kind of heaven and hell, but there are now discoveries that open the door to the possibility for a parallel universe other dimensions, right, coexisting with our own. These things can be argued within a scientific framework. So you cannot just say there is no proof. The door is opening, so to speak, right? And more work needs to be done. Critically, more work needs to be done in the theological arena. We need to advance theology. We need to evolve the theological enterprise so that these things can be married and something new, something synthetically advanced and enhanced can emerge as a result. So we can counter the criticisms put forward by people like Samaras. I think Samaras is right in raising this criticism. And we need to engage that in a more comprehensive light. Okay, so what else? The question of suffering we know, the question of redemption. Okay, all these are major questions. A lot of work needs to be done. And the other thing which I want to catch on, which I think is very important, is the idea of heaven. And Samaritan makes a certain observation about, oh, we're all doing this for heaven, right? That is the Christian enterprise, right? To be a Christian is to go to heaven. And this is something I agree with the sentiment, okay? The idea that to be a good Christian is to sort of go to heaven or that we do everything that we have to do, please God, to make God happy, and then God is going to put us in heaven. As a result, it's something I do agree with. In terms of 
what it means to the humanistic enterprise. Now, the new humanist, as I argued, and of course, as any humanist would argue, is about valuing human life. Of course, the question is, how do we evaluate? To what extent? In what way? And in fact, this is where I would have to disagree with some of the humanists. For example, the abortion question, okay? Now, I don't want to get into the debate on abortion here, but there are limits, it seems to me, on how the idea of human life and human well-being is perceived, how it's valued, the sort of hierarchy of values as it corresponds to what a good life is, right? I mean, for example, it means leading a good life without harming others, without hurting other people, right? Without supporting political dictatorships, without affirming any kind of horrible eugenics theories or without affirming racial profiling or things like that. But then when it comes to certain other questions, you know, maybe things are more loose and flexible, let's say, right? Especially on the question of euthanasia and abortion. So these are topics for another time, listener. But on the question about heaven, the point is right. I mean, if Christianity is all about helping people lead a good life so they can go to heaven, right? And be happy in heaven, right? As opposed to helping make the world a better place in the here and now, that raises serious questions about the humanistic character of the Christian faith. And this is something I will engage going forward, which is that, is this enough? And in fact, this raises questions on whether we understand Christianity correctly, whether we have developed this religion in the right way, whether Christianity has evolved into its correct state. And this is a deeper question on what Christianity even is, on what faith in God really is, on what religion is or ought to be with respect to questions on human life, on questions of progress, on human advancement, okay, on human betterment, on the upliftment of the human condition. These are deeper questions which correspond to the evolution of belief itself. Okay, that is a much deeper issue for us to consider. So here I'm in somewhat concurrence with Harris, but at the same time I differ on it at the intellectual level. You know, also critically, we shall see, politically as well. So this is something for us to consider. Right, finally, Sam Harrison and the Trump derangement syndrome. So listen, I'm not going to get into this at the moment, but I will encourage you to do your research on this. There's some interesting things on it, so I don't want to you know, get too much. I started out this episode looking at the politics of Sam Harris, of sort of the intellectual ground from which he rises. Sam Harris, all these people are on the left, okay? The left is somehow perfect and pristine and beautiful and intellectual and rational. And, and, and frankly, I don't buy any of it. I don't think anyone does. I don't think even people on the left. The danger of ideology, okay, that is the word here, is very much strong on the left. Now, this is not a right is immune, certainly in the United States, but point is it's a right-wing and a left-wing issue. The left is not immune to this. That is something, in my view, works against the credibility of Sam Harris. Okay, somehow, just because he's an atheist, right, you know, he's a rational person. It's like this, you know, people come out of the woodwork criticizing religion and they are somehow to be, you know, elevated as knowledgeable and smart. I mean, give me a freaking break. Some of these clowns... My point is, listener, we have to be careful. Just because someone criticizes religion does not make them smart. Okay, just because someone you know, attacks religion and builds up a following. And this is the amazing atheist, right? This guy, you know, basically rants on YouTube about why religion is bad and someone makes him a smart person. The point is this, criticizing religion is very easy, especially if you're on the left, because that's natural, right? A lot of the people don't value what? Not just religion or God, but heritage, tradition, culture, history, nation, states. And this is where we have the real problem with Sam Harris, I think, and that is his political views, especially when it comes to Donald Trump. Again, the Trump derangement syndrome, you can look this up. I'm not going to spell it out for you, what that is. I'm sure, what is it, Urban Dictionary might have a definition. But the point is, listener, Sam Harris's irrationality, it seems to me, when it comes to political issues, vested the guys on the left, was exposed in relation to President Trump. Now, again, I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm not here to defend President Trump. That's not the aim of this podcast. But the point is, you can discern a person's mental state, their supposed knowledgeability. You know, Sam Harris, he's this calm, cool character, you know, speaks well, sort of, you know, you have these videos on Sam Harris destroys religion, all this kind of hyperbolic content. 
point is, guys, if you listen to Sam Harris, since the election of Donald Trump, since the election of Trump as president, the kind of crap that has come out of this guy, it's unbelievable. This guy, in fact, he's now even been castigated on the left for being irrational and in some cases downright stupid. But Sam Harris, believe it or not, right, this great, you know, sage-like figure who talks in a very articulate way, you know, and this, and this is funny. But the worst of all is delegitimizing. It raises questions on who this person is. Now, on President Trump, okay, I don't want to get too much into this, okay? I would encourage you to do a couple of things, right? One, Google, YouTube, right? Sam Harris, Trump. Just YouTube that, right? And you find a video on, this is on ABC Australia, right? There's like, you know, 746,000 views, right? And he can't believe that Trump is president, right? This is, you know, from a few years back. And in the video, right, Sam Harris makes a mention of how ISIS has faded away. Just this particular point, okay? Just watch the video. It's around... It's basically 12 minutes long. I think around nine minutes, around the ninth minute, right? He mentions how ISIS has faded away. Now, just to be clear about this, right? ISIS was, was rampaging through the Middle East. He controlled much of large parts of Iraq, parts of Syria, you know, parts of, I'm not sure, Afghanistan, but certainly Syria and, and Iraq. And ISIS was on the rampage, right? I mean, President Trump came into office. He basically went helter-skelter, conducting massive bombing campaigns, working with Iraqi forces and later Kurdish forces as well. And ISIS, so Daesh, right? was destroyed. At least his geographic presence was eradicated. Of course, ISIS still exists, right? I mean, it exists in a sort of decentralized way, but its geographic position as an entity, right? It was wiped out, right? And under heavy bombardment and considered anti-ISIS military campaigns. So this was done under the Trump administration. And so ISIS did not just you know, fade away, right? As Mr. Harris says, ISIS was taken out by the Trump administration. Of course, people can say, okay, the, the Obama administration was also working on this. I don't deny that. But the point is, Trump did commit himself to doing this, and he did it, okay? And there are other examples that you can point to. So my point here, listen, when it comes to Sam Harris, that ISIS faded away under the Trump administration, he's not giving credit uh, where credit is due, okay? That's just one point. Okay? I'm not here to defend Trump. Okay? I'm not here to say, you know, Trump is good or some of these people in the U.S. who think that Trump won the election. Okay, I don't know, okay? I don't want to get into that debate here. But the point is, listener, this does not look right, okay? When someone doesn't really represent reality accurately. Further still, the people who say that Trump is crazy, that he's irrational, that he's completely bonkers. I'll give you another example. This is probably even more unbelievable. This example, right, it's taken from, where is this? This is from, all right, this is from the Council of Foreign Relations, all right, what is this? Just like an independent think tank in the United States. They're politically not aligned. And this is report number 84, right, April 2019. Trump's foreign policies are better than they seem, April 2019, report number 84, by a person named Robert D. Blackwell, okay? So for those interested in Trump's foreign policy achievements, right, I think the domestic policy is a different story, or maybe a better one, I don't know. Just have a look at this, right? Number of issues, for example, on China, on Iraq. In fairness to the paper, and I think in fairness to the Council of Foreign Relations, which is not a pro-Trump think tank from what I can understand, the president of the organization is not, is kind of anti-Trump, actually, if I'm not mistaken. So listener, please do your own research. I'm not here to vouch for Trump or defend Trump. But this is something for you to consider, right? Trump is, is not as crazy as people presented him to be, right? I mean, for example, tariffs on China, which I just learned, I think the Biden administration is maintaining it, right? They're not done away with the tariffs on China. That's interesting as well. Now, why am I saying this? Okay, why am I bringing these examples up? Is it to defend President Trump? Is it to say that Trump is good? Is it to say that Trump should be running for office again? Okay, is it just to rub Mr. Harris's face in by saying, oh, look, Trump has been a great president, Sam Harris is wrong? No, my point is, listener, hating Trump just because he's uh, bombastic, right? That's because he speaks, you know, he's kind of crude, let's, let's be real about it. So there's a funny video, right, on YouTube, okay, where President Trump, right, this is before he won the election, right, he basically calls Charles Crothammer. He's like this 
intellectual on Fox News. I think he's no longer here. I think he's moved on. He called him a jerk. Kind of rude, I think, for saying that he was not a good candidate. This is back in the day when he was running for office. So we know who Trump is. We know how he is, how he speaks, whatnot. But the man, you know, he, he seems to deliver on action. Even the leader of ISIS, if I'm not mistaken, what's his name? Al-Baghdadi, I think, right? He's the head of ISIS. He was killed during the Trump administration, right? So things have been happening, listener. So I'm not here to defend Trump, but my point is, I just hope you get this right. Sam Harris is a critique of President Trump, right? He has become kind of ludicrous. He went so far, I'll tell you, right? Some guy named Gadsad, right? Some of you may know who this person is. Right? Evolutionary psychologist. Guys from the Middle East original. And he himself made the mickey out of Sam Harris on this. So the problem with Sam Harris is that his irrationality became apparent in the face of Trump. Trump sort of brought it out of him. And Trump brought it out of a lot of people. A lot of these calm, collective people. Even Daniel Dennett has, actually. Okay, and the one example that really got me, for that matter, and this is something I have to say, was when the election in 2020, right, when Biden won. But that is when the delegate count for Biden surpassed the threshold. I think it was 2070, right? Basically, Sam Harris tweeted out President Trump's comments. Was it the Hollywood tapes, right? Where he basically says, you know, he wants to grab a woman by her. You guys know what I'm talking about. Got him in trouble and he had to defend himself at the debate, right? About with Hillary Clinton, right? So the part where he mentions that about grabbing a woman by her, you know, Sam Harris quotes those words and says, oh, now you can't do it or now you're out of office. Something like that. He's basically going after him, right? By mentioning that particular thing. That is not a very rational thing to say. That is not a very serious thing to say. That's a very, that's a low blow. That is coming from Sam Harris, right? The well-spoken, calm, collected, you know, smart guy, you know, who uses, you know, highfalutin terms. It's coming from him. He's referencing President Trump, you know, mentioning, I'm not trying to defend those words, by the way, but using that example, right, of, you know, of grabbing. This, for me, again, indicates there's something wrong with these people. Just because you're on the left, just because you're a secular, just because you're an atheist, doesn't make you immune to the dangers of your rationality. And there's another one, probably we'll get into this guy as well, called Stephen Pinnaker. And he's written a book called Enlightenment Now. I think I need to eat into that as well at some point. When the election result came, right, he and his wife, I think, right, called Goldstein, these people come out, they come out dancing, right, like a bunch of clowns. When the delicate numbers were released, the Biden had surpassed Trump. Now, again, I don't care whether Trump won or Biden won. The point is, why react in this kind of way? Think about this for a second. There's something else going on. They don't like Trump just because he's a you know, Republican or because he's... There's something about them, okay? They're not comfortable with Trump or they're not comfortable with the right. And deeper down, it seems to me, they're not comfortable with Christianity or the Christian heritage of the West for reasons that go beyond. There's something else. And this is something we'll have to consider going forward. For now, listener, Sam Harris, right? You know, great speaker, I guess, speaks well, debates well, etc., etc. But there's something wrong with the guy, right? His hate for Trump, in a way, exposed his own irrational faculties, right? His own small-mindedness. This is not a great person in the sense that people make him out to be. And this is just a starting point. Now, critically, when it comes to God, his criticism of God is very amateurish. It's very on the surface. Anyone can do what he's doing. Anyone can blast religion by saying, where is God in the face of suffering? Where is God in the face of all of this? Where is God who loves us? These are age-old questions which many have asked and we continue to ask them. Pointing these out does not make you a smart person. It does not make you a credible critique of religion. It does not. All right, folks, this is the New Humanist Podcast. I'm Damien. This is episode 44, the second of part seven, and see you guys next time.